The Balance and Falls Special Interest Group of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy, a component of the APTA, is bringing you this episode today. I will be your host. My name is Marissa Lyon. I am a physical therapist in Portland, Maine, an assistant professor at the University of New England, and on the nominating committee of the Balance and Falls Special Interest Group. So today I'm having a conversation with Sudeshna Chatterjee. Sudeshna is an assistant professor in the Department of Physical Therapy and Rehabilitation Sciences at Drexel University. She has a PhD in Rehabilitation Science and a postdoctoral training in geriatrics and neurorehabilitation at the University of Florida. Her research focuses on how the brain controls walking and how this changes with aging, genetics, executive function, and neurologic disorders. She has received a career development award from the NIH-funded Claude D. Pepper Older Americans Independence Center at the University of Florida to study the genetic link between dopamine metabolism and brain function and mobility in older adults. She has also conducted clinical research on brain function and mobility in older adults and adults post-stroke at the University of Florida and the VA Brain Rehabilitation Research Center. This year at CSM, she was awarded the Best Platform Award by the Balance and Falls Special Interest Group and the Early Career Scientist Award for her abstract, that from the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. At Drexel University, she continues to advance her research in brain aging and mobility, and we are very lucky to hear from her about some of her research and the implications of it today. Thank you so much for joining us, Sudeshna. Thank you, Marissa. Uh, thank you so much for having me. So my first question is that much of your research focuses on neuroimaging and genetics, and I think these are really interesting, but they're kind of beyond what we see commonly in balance and mobility research. There's some hot topics right now, high intensity training, locomotor training, um, adaptive perturbation training. So what drew you to look at these specific topics? So that's a great question. Um, so during my PhD training in Dr. David Clark's lab at the University of Florida, I worked on several projects where we um, measured the change in sympathetic nervous system activity during walking uh, to assess, to objectively assess the perceived challenge of walking. And we found that a higher change in sympathetic nervous system activity during walking was associated with poor walking performance or poor mobility performance. Uh, so that really triggered my interest in looking at person-specific factors uh, that are associated with mobility and that can predict mobility outcomes. Mm -hmm. um, so my postdoctoral training, as you mentioned earlier, is in uh, geriatrics and neurorehabilitation. And uh, uh, for my postdoc, I, I investigated the changes in prefrontal brain activity during walking in older adults. And I was really interested in looking at what factors, uh, what person-specific factors predicted this change in brain activity during walking. Mm -hmm. um, and I found that factors such as age, executive function, balance, self-efficacy, all predicted this change in brain activity. And uh, this was associated, this change was associated with walking performance. The genetic component that you mentioned is a natural extension of, of this work. Uh, hmm. This project was conducted under the mentorship of doctors uh, David Clark, Rachel Seidler, and Temur Langai at the University of Florida. And I focused on the COM gene because this, this gene has been associated with dopamine metabolism and prefrontal brain activity. Mm. So we, we do have some um, idea about, like the, this, there's been a lot of work that's done with looking at you know, the COM gene and its effect on cognition. But um, 
we don't fully understand how this gene might be uh, moderating complex walking functions or complex motor functions. And that's what my research is currently addressing. And that's what your platform this year at CSM was focused on. Was that this is correct. Gene. So that's this correct. gene, as you mentioned, affects uh, the metabolism of catecholamines and it is the catechol O methyltransferase gene. Is that correct? That is correct. And you call it COMT. It's a sure. mouthful. Yeah, it's a mouthful. I've I've heard people call it COMT and COMT. I I just say COMT. Mm -hmm. So can you explain um, anything else about the COMT gene? What it does, what its role in the body is uh, in general, and then anything else to share about how it's related to balance and mobility. Yeah. So um, most of us have heard of uh, the neurotransmitter dopamine, and we know that it acts as a chemical messenger between neurons. It helps neurons talk to each other better. Mm -hmm. um, the COM gene has been associated with how quickly um, dopamine is metabolized and cleared uh, from, the, from the prefrontal cortex. So people who inherit certain genetic variants of the COM gene uh, may be showing a faster metabolism of uh, dopamine from the prefrontal cortex. So the level of dopamine in these individuals is going to be low. Mm. Older age is associated with a natural depletion in the levels of dopamine. Oh, so okay. Older adults who inherit uh, these genetic variants that are associated with faster metabolism of dopamine and um, uh, lower dopamine availability these individuals are more susceptible to poor mobility and cognitive functions. So mm -hmm. that is how it is uh, coming into picture. And that's why we are looking at <clears throat> the effect of COM gene uh, and its, uh, its moderating effect on mobility, especially in older adults. So any kind of anyone listening or any one of us could have one of these variants of the COMP gene, but because we have, uh, we're fairly young and we have a fairly normal amount of dopamine and dopamine metabolism, we wouldn't notice until we get to that age in which dopamine availability is naturally lower. Then you add on that piece of the COMP gene. Now you have even less dopamine availability, which is going to affect brain function. Is that kind of how- that is per That's perfect. Uh, I think you said it better than I did. <laughs> Um, yes, uh, so the the effect of the COM gene is likely to be amplified as people grow older, mm -hmm. uh, when we don't have as many resources, and um, that's when we might be seeing these effects uh, becoming really prominent. And how many different variants of the COM gene are, are you looking at? Are you looking kind of like two or three, or are there hundreds of variants? Yeah, so... Um, there are two alleles and people can have different combinations of these alleles. Uh, so we are essentially looking at three different genotype groups okay. Uh, okay. that are associated with high, low and intermediate levels of dopamine in the prefrontal cortex. High, medium and low, okay. Um, and then how did you assess which of these alleles your participants had during your research? Um, so for my, um, research. I collected saliva samples from older adults. Uh, we use an assistive, uh, assisted method of collecting saliva samples, and I collaborated with uh, Dr. Taimur Langai's lab at University of Florida to conduct the genotyping piece. Okay. And then during your research, were there any other genetic, personal, or environmental factors that impacted mobility outcomes you needed to account for or include? That's a wonderful question. So uh, this was a pilot study mm -hmm. uh, where we were able to enroll uh, 64 older adults over a span of two years. And um, 
we when we look at their um, at their uh, uh, at the group characteristics, we found that factors like age, uh, mobility function, cognitive functions, these are uh, not significantly different between the groups. Okay. But given the sample size for this particular study, we were not able to test uh, many of the other things that we might be interested in. Mm. So I think the next step for us would be to conduct the study in a larger sample and then look at uh, other uh, the effect of other genes or uh, environment fa factors, just like you mentioned. So looking at these components um, would be the next step. Yeah. What are some of the main findings and implications of your research in the comp gene for clinicians working with individuals with balance deficits? Um, yeah, so in this pilot study, our older adults performed um, complex walking tasks where they had to walk on uneven set, uh, surfaces of, of, uh, at varying levels of difficulty. Um, and we found uh, sex differences in walking performance in older adults. And this, these differences were moderated by uh, the common genotype that the person had. Mm -hmm. So we found that females, older females, who had low or intermediate levels of dopamine, depending on their genotypes, these individuals showed a greater decline in walking performance compared to males who mm -hmm. had those genes. So uh, the clinical implication of this is that we, we know that um, older women are more susceptible to non-fatal falls, but as people grow older, being aware of what are some of the factors that might be uh, moderating changes in mobility or cognitive functions in them, that might be something that we will be interested in incorporating in our practice. Very interesting. Thinking about um, you know, my practice working with individuals with neurologic conditions, I'm trying to think about you know, there's so many big question, question things we can think about. Now, as um, the practice of medicine is changing and people have more and more access to things like, you know, genetic tests and blood tests and those kinds of things that they didn't have access to before. So I'm trying to think, you know, um, are we looking at a world where 10 years from now, people have a better sense of what versions of different genes they have and how would that impact the frequency of uh, balance assessments or our awareness that someone might be more at risk once they get a neurologic condition or as they get older. I think that that is a really interesting, you know, long-term potential looking at looking at that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I agree with you. I think we still need to do a lot of work to bring in um, factors like genetics into our clinical practice, but I'm hopeful that we're moving in that direction. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, thinking too for me about neurologic, which neurologic rehabilitation, which you also work in, you know, thinking about the conditions that we already know where dopamine availability has an impact on the condition itself, things like the Parkinsonisms or depression. Um, I'm kind of wondering, you know, if you are looking at, looking at doing work with individuals with neurologic conditions in the future and its impact on is someone with one of these versions of dopamine, um, availability due to the comp gene, is there going to be a greater impact of specific conditions on them? Um, currently, my research is focused more on older adults, but you mentioned Parkinson's disease and that, and individuals uh, who have Parkinson's, they, for lack of a better word, they would form a great model for testing the effect of this gene um, because of the natural depletion in dopamine levels in them. So mm -hmm. it would be very interesting to see at what point in life uh, this gene might be having that amplifying effect and how that affects 
uh, outcome measures like mobility and cognitive functions in this population and how we can incorporate that in our clinical practice. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe something for you to look into one day or a new a new researcher at the University of Florida or someone else that you can absolutely absolutely. Um, so switching gears a little bit, uh, one of the other areas that you've investigated is the impact of transcranial direct current stimulation, specifically as a concomitant intervention, and combining that with complex walking tasks. First, can you explain what transcranial direct current stimulation is? Yeah. So. TDCS or transcranial direct current stimulation is a form of uh, non-invasive brain stimulation. Mm-hmm. Um, we apply a very mild current during our, our research group has been applying um, a mild current during the practice of walking tasks. Other people have applied TDCS uh, during rest and I've looked at its effect on cognitive and motor functions. So um, there is a different approach depending on who you're talking to. Mm-hmm. Um, so we apply uh, about two milliamps of, um, of of current, and this is applied for about twenty minutes during the practice of a motor task. Uh, TDCS by itself may not cause uh, or may not generate action potentials. It's it kind of depends on what the state of the resting membrane potential is. If so, and so that is why we we think that pairing it with the with with an activity or with a task is helpful because when you're uh, about to perform a task, you would see those changes in those membrane potentials. And, um, you know, those tasks will be activating the networks that we want to access. TDCS will help these networks, you know, if, if they're close to the firing threshold, they're just gonna push these neurons to fire beyond that threshold. And um, really uh, we think the, the effect of TDCS is to help neurons uh, talk to each other better, to help with that network connectivity, and also to get um, to have a better understanding or to to be able to pay more attention to our environment, get the cues from our environment, and you know performing the task that way. Great. Can you tell me a little bit about the TDCS device and how it goes on the patient, what it looks like, what the patient feels, if anything? Um, that you've used specifically in your research? Yeah, so um, the device that I'm currently using is, is really tiny. It's a small pocket device. Uh, it's very lightweight, so it's not really um, uh, inclusive or anything. And uh, we apply these uh, prepared electrode pads. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been targeting the prefrontal cortex, so we apply these on the forehead. Other people have targeted the motor cortex, so the placement changes. Um, and so we apply these pads on the forehead of the people and the TDCS device either goes into a backpack or it can be adjusted around their waist or something. And um, yeah, and they essentially perform the walking task while the TDCS is going on. Very interesting. Um, I thought it was also particularly interesting that you chose to look at one point at the impact of just one session of TDCS. Can you talk to me about what made you ask the question of what's the role of only one session? Um, so much of our work that we, uh, we, much of our knowledge that we have acquired over the years about uh, the application of TDCS, the intensity, the duration has been based on uh, prior work that looked at application of TDCS on the primary motor cortex. Now we are applying uh, TDCS to the prefrontal cortex because this is based on our work that shows that uh, the prefrontal cortex is engaged during the performance of complex walking tasks and older adults tend to um, 
really rely on these cognitive regions of the brain, so that's prefrontal cortex included, um, during the performance of these cognitive, uh, of these complex motor tasks. We have a good understanding of the intensity at which uh, TDCS should be applied and the duration of application of TDCS, but we still don't have a really good understanding of how many sessions would be required to see um, improvements in, in practice and then the retention of those practice effects. So our research is contributing to that. Here we investigated the effect of one session of applying one session of uh, TDCS uh, to the prefrontal cortex during the practice of a complex obstacle walking task. And we have been able to show that individuals who receive the active TDCS, active form of TDCS during the practice of complex walking tasks were able to retain these effects, these uh, beneficial effects, um, at least one week post-practice compared to individuals who did not receive TDCS. Wow. That's a pretty dramatic difference to look at something one week later um, and for it to be retained to have that difference in individuals after one dose. Yeah, and um, it's likely that we would need to, um, to have multiple sessions to really consolidate these practice effects. But again, that is something that we need to work towards. Right now, we know that a single session is going to probably help us retain some of these practice effects even a week after it, it was uh, administered. Um, other people have, have applied multiple sessions of TDCS. Again, the results are a little mixed because uh, the site of stimulation has been a little different between research groups. The tasks that were chosen are different between research groups. In terms of physical therapy practice, if and when uh, neuromodulation may become a part of you know, our, our clinical practice. Maybe we might be using these neuromodulatory adjuvants along with our, um, our regular PT practice. We have to be mindful about how many sessions you know, we can prescribe for the patients. So maybe the goal is to try to maximize the benefits within um, the minimum number of uh, you know, sessions that might be required to see those improvements. Okay. So uh, if, if a single session helps, uh, that's great, but it's very likely that we might need multiple sessions to really see that consolidatory effect. Yeah, absolutely. That makes that makes sense to me. Um, so the, the next question, I, I'm going to give a summary of what I think the answer is, and you can let me know if I'm correct about my understanding of this work. So the question is, what are the main findings and implications of this research for clinicians? And um, what I'm hearing from you is that the application of TDCS to the prefrontal cortex while performing more complex walking tasks with older adults, even only one time, results in differences um, between those who received the TDCS versus those who did not. So did a complex walking task without um, neuromodulatory um, kind of impact. Yeah. So um, we can think of it as, you know, like people who received TDCS were able to uh, show a greater retention mm -hmm. of the practice effects versus people who did not receive brain stimulation. They did not retain those effects. And uh, in fact, in our research, we, we saw that there was a decline in their performance when they came back, you know, one week later and they, they repeated oh. the performance. Whereas people who received the active TDCS they not only retained those effects, but they also tended, tended to show a continued improvement in walking performance. 
Um, but again, that is something that's really um, very curious. And I would like to see like how many, like how much do they improve? Uh, we, we saw that they were continuing to improve, but then our research design was such that we did not measure like how much they can improve. It's, we just saw that in that post session, they just continue to improve. Yeah, I think the retention is that a really important piece. It wasn't just immediate or the next day. It was that these these were differences that were retained even a week later, which is a pretty good retention task when you think about how long someone remembers something, um, whether it's implicit or explicit. Right. That's great. So what do you think are the main ways that clinicians can translate your research findings into practical or intervention-focused uh, means? Um, so I think some of the clinicians that I've, uh, you know, talked to, I think they're already doing that. Um, so if you just think about a couple of years ago, for physical therapy practice, we would just concentrate on walking on, you know, uniform surface. We're just looking at walking speed. And mm -hmm. then uh, we do use some uh, categories of walking speed to predict whether our, our patient would be uh, more of a household ambulator versus, you know, working, uh, walking up, up and about in the community. But I think over the years that has changed a little bit and people are including complex walking tasks. People are practicing obstacle negotiation. People are practicing dual task walking. So I think we need to, um, and since research has shown that there is a link between cognitive functions and mobility, we have to keep strengthening those links through physical therapy practice. Um, the larger implication, and I, and I realize that we need to do a lot of work. We still need to do a lot of work in this area to uh, really inform clinical practice, but I think um, in the in the larger scheme of things, um, just being aware of, you know, if you're seeing that your patients are not improving after n number of, you know, sessions, maybe it's time to include some kind of a cognitive training uh, component to it, or uh, try dual tasking, try changing your design so that you are making those that link between cognition and mobility stronger. Yeah, I think the thing that I thought was really interesting related to that, thinking about the comp gene, you know, we're not going to see people testing the comp gene tomorrow in the clinic, but I think it is a good reminder of the number of unknown personal factors that are affecting the balance mobility of the people we see, whether they're older adults or have neurologic conditions, and kind of our role in doing these really thorough interviews and examinations constantly evaluating the effect of our interventions and thinking about the individualized nature of what we do in kind of the science and art of physical therapy. There may be a factor there that you don't know about. And so thinking about, um, you know, am I doing interventions that are what the person needs to do in their real life? And often that means dual tasking, complex walking tasks, perturbations, um, things like that, because those are things a person's probably wanting to be able to tolerate in a day-to-day -day basis. Right. That's, uh, that's a great summary of, um, of these findings. Um, so one thing I would like to add is like some of the work that we have done with uh, functional neuroimaging using FNIA's functional knee and PET spectroscopy, we have found that older adults and people post-stroke, so people who have uh, problems with mobility, mm -hmm. they tend to show over-recruitment of the prefrontal cortex when the task is relatively simple. So yeah. a simple task, just like walking on a uniform surface, you will see over-recruitment in these individuals. But when they are trying to perform a complex task like dual task walking or obstacle negotiation, 
uh, we see that there is a ceiling of uh, there is a um, uh, there is a reduced ceiling of recru recruitment. Mm -hmm. So these individuals are not able to modulate that task specific activation that's required to successfully perform these tasks. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So as physical therapists, I think we should be mindful about that. And as I said earlier, if you're seeing that uh, even after multiple sessions, your your patient is not improving we probably need to look at, you know, change the way we are approaching this problem, or um, we might need to change our, our, design, our intervention designs to um, really address what might be the underlying issue here. And not just, you know, like keep going on with the same uh, intervention protocol that we have. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, wow, that's really wonderful. I think that that would, will be really interesting thinking as I move forward in treating patients and thinking about that. Uh, another question I often like to ask is, were there any non-significant trends or interesting observations or even anecdotes that arose during your research? So things that either you didn't measure or didn't arise to enough true significance to report in a manuscript um, that you thought was particularly interesting, whether it's going to spur on future research or it's just an interesting nugget you kind of held on to. Um, so there, I don't recall anything that we have not reported, but um Something that has intrigued me is um, the inter-individual differences mm -hmm. that affect our mobility outcomes. So some people might, you know, might do very well with uh, the administration of TDCS, mm -hmm. but TDCS might not be for everyone. So just trying to, it, it really um, is of, of great interest to me. And this is something that I would like to investigate in the future. Like, what is it about people that makes them uh, good candidates for the for you know like non-invasive brain stimulation or for other forms of uh, treatment? And then, what are some factors that might not make them a good candidate for this? And then also uh, looking at placebo effects mm. because I found this in my research, and some other people have also reported that um, even if you apply a, sh a sham form of you know, non-invasive brain stimulation, the way we design our active and sham protocols are such that people are really blinded to what they're getting, whether they're getting the active or the sham sessions. And usually our studies are double-blinded, which means that I, the investigator, am also blinded to what people are getting. So that is, again, something that I'm really interested in. Like You have your active intervention, but you also see some improvements when you're giving sham stimulation. Right, um, which is probably stimulation for thirty seconds versus you know giving giving active stimulation for twenty minutes. Mm. Um, so, but we still see some improvements. Now, those improvements may not be retained or something, but even during practice, you do see some improvements. And why is is that happening? Yeah, uh, when when we think about the prefrontal cortex, we also think about the reward reward circuitry. We think about motivation and things like that. Right. So, um, so yeah, I mean, th those are some things that really uh, are interesting and puzzle me. Yeah, I think the power of placebos and nocebos is really fascinating because it really does kind of remind us that the the mind um, and the way it functions is really, you know, like you said, there's a lot related to motivation and reward centers and, you know, telling someone I am putting this, what they see, maybe see as a magical box that's going to make your brain work better. And I'm going to put it on right here. And I'm someone who cares about you. And I'm doing really cool funded research. They're like, oh, I'm going to get better. Like that's, that's a great thing. So um, <laughs> I think sometimes it is, you know, it's, it's very good because you need that sham as a comparison for controlled trials, but 
you know, I think that there's uh, definitely an area of research for what is the power of a placebo just on its own and how can we harness that more successfully as clinicians? Right, right. That's a great point. And um, I mean, if you look at some of the current reports, there's a lot of talk about, you know, how older adults are lonely. Mm. So when they come for for these research sessions, there is some interaction with, you know, the investigators. Uh, we have undergrads who, who work with us. These undergrads remind them of their grandchildren. So there is some interaction so it's it's really, I mean, in a research setting, if you think about it, there are so many factors that come into play, but all of these factors are so interesting um, and something to think about. Yeah, I think doing older adult research is always uh, very interesting because there is that piece of, um, you can't just be a robot, you're a researcher, you're a person. So, you know, I, I, I told you before we started taping that my research is in is observational research. So I'm supposed to be in the corner of the room. I tell the person what's going on ahead of time. They consent. The PT consents. I'm like, you know, you shouldn't you shouldn't even you shouldn't even remember I'm there. But all the time I have people, whether they have low mobility for a neurologic condition, they're older, and so they don't have a lot as robust of a social life. They try to engage me in conversations. They make jokes. They want to talk to me about the therapy they're receiving. I'm always like no, no, please don't talk to me. <laughs> um, and yeah, you bring someone in for an intervention, you tell them we're doing this cool study, we care about you, and they're chatting with the, the other graduate students. It's this whole fun kind of experience. And and I think that is, that's always a piece that you kind of forget about until you're doing the data collection and you're like, oh, right, this is something different for this person. <laughs> Absolutely. So what are some of the future directions of your research? What are kind of your big questions you want to ask ask and answer in the next couple of years? Yeah, so uh, this is, again, going back to some of uh, the discussion that we, we were having before you started recording, or maybe it could be during the recording itself. Um, so I, I'm interested in investigating this uh, sex differences in walking performance that we are seeing in, uh, in our older adult, in, that we saw in our older adult population. And um, the next step for me would be to test these findings in a larger population of older adults. Um, I am also interested in looking at how some other variables like ethnicity, um, you know, where somebody lives, the education levels, other environmental factors, how it comes into play. So the next step for me would be to test these findings in a larger, larger population and then also include some other variables like you, you mentioned um, looking at, you know, how other genes might be interacting with calm, uh, also looking at what other factors, how other factors might be contributing to the mobility outcomes that we see. One of my questions, I don't know if maybe you have any hypotheses. So you're looking at these, these differences in a person and how they affect their kind of baseline mobility. Do you have any kind of thought on how it might affect how people respond to different kinds of interventions? Um, or is that something that you've thought about looking at or that anybody else that you know of is looking at? Yeah, that's something that I have definitely thought about. So um, I was I was talking about how I'm interested in looking at uh, how individual differences can impact mobility outcomes or uh, treatment intervention outcomes to be more specific. Um, I'm not sure if certain people who have uh, who, who have uh, certain genetic variants respond better to, say, a non-invasive brain stimulation kind of intervention. So yeah, those are questions that I would be uh, very interested in looking at. The uh, another gene that people have, uh, you know, worked with is BDNF. Mm -hmm. um, that is again something to um, look at whether this interacts with the COM gene um, and what happens with it, and what are the results of that. 
and BDNF, just remind everyone, is the brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is uh, very commonly talked about as something that upregulates or increases the likelihood of neuroplasticity in adults. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, <clears throat> there is research that suggests that exercise might be uh, might help us increase the levels of BDNF. Right. Um, so that would be something that I would be curious about. Very interesting. So my last two questions are kind of fun questions. Um, they're about falls and balance. So first question is, what have you fallen in love with in the field of physical therapy? What makes um, your heart sing? <laughs> So I think that's a great question. Um, I think physical therapy has uh, provided me with a unique opportunity to train as a movement specialist mm -hmm. and um, apply my knowledge and training uh, to form these wonderful, productive interdisciplinary collaborations um, to not only advance the field of rehabilitation science, but also to help our patients in a meaningful way. Mm -hmm. And then um, I'm probably biased, but I, um, I don't think any other profession would have prepared me to be so adaptive and receptive to new ideas and um, to learn how to apply these, uh, these ideas uh, my, and my experience uh, successfully to my research, uh, my teaching and practice. Very cool. Well, as a qualitative researcher myself, I would remind you that biases are not bad. It's good to just be aware and share them. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not bad to love my own profession, right? Yeah. Exactly. It's a wonderful profession. I think that you're very right. There's a certain amount of adaptability. Um, and then my, my second question is, how do you keep it all in balance? What are you doing when you're not in your research lab to keep yourself sane and enjoying and in love with PT? Um, so that's, again, another great question. I don't think I'm the best person to answer that because uh, I think balance is something that I struggle with, and I'm sure many of us struggle with that. Um, so especially as new faculty, I'm, I'm trying to find a balance between, you know, research, teaching, and service. Um, as a postdoc, uh, you know, your, your, your primary responsibility is running projects, um, mm -hmm. you know, publishing your findings and things like that. So even though it seems stressful at that time, now it seems like, oh, that wasn't difficult at all. All <laughs> I had to do was focus on research. Now I have to focus on these three components besides, you know, uh, advancing my research. But I've got some really wonderful colleagues who are very focused and very productive. And I've learned from them, them that prioritizing your tasks is important. Mm -hmm. Get what you need to, you know, be done just prioritize those. And right. then also having regular meeting meetings with my um, faculty mentors is also helpful. Because um, like if I if I'm moving towards a direction that's not going to be very fruitful for me, they would they like do a really good job of bringing me back on track. So you know, it's essentially just trying to figure out a path that you get the things that you need to get done. And then also, you know, your personal life. So trying to maintain a balance. But it's a process. I've not reached that yet. We're all on a process to keep our th things in balance for our whole lives. I, I love that you mentioned mentors. I relied a lot on a, a mentor when I first started in academia. Um, I guess it was four years ago now, which sounds not true, but <laughs> what is time? Uh, and I, I developed and like asked for a very formal mentorship relationship. And that's something I encourage my students when they go out into clinical practice and new ac academics to, to go to someone and say, will you please be my mentor? And when I'm asking you for that is, I am asking for you to meet with me this often for this long to talk about these topics. And I think developing formal mentorship is such an important part of an early developing career. Absolutely. And I think we don't 
um, I think as early career faculty, and I'm sure you have experienced this too, we are a little hesitant to reach out to our, you know, senior faculty, right? Because they already have so much on their plate. But um, as, you know, every day goes by, I realize that's not always the case. In fact, senior faculty really like when you bring in your enthusiasm into their office, like they already have these other things that they need to get to, but it's it's fresh, you know, like just talking to you, it's it helps them um, bring in, you know, uh, incorporate their experience in something. And, and they're really invested in, in helping you grow and be successful. So yeah, I would say reach out to people. I'm sure like things have been um, difficult for many of us given the pandemic and, you know, family situations and things like that. But I would just say that, uh, think about reaching out to people. Your colleagues are there to help you, to support you. People want you to succeed. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I've learned to really humble myself and ask for help constantly from everyone around me. And um, I think you're right. There's definitely, I think, you know, either once you've achieved some goal, whether it's getting your DPT and starting as a clinician or getting your PhD and starting, you have this sense of like, I have now reached a goal and I should have some level of competence. Um, But I think as soon as you accept that that's probably not true, that there is a, you know, 95% of the stuff that you need to know, you still need to learn. Uh, and ask for help that really can help help set you up for success and and really adds to the spice of I think organizations. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Sudeshna, it was just so wonderful talking to you, hearing about your research. You're just really skilled at explaining in a way that is understandable these you know topics that can feel to some people overwhelming, neuroimaging and genetics. And and I think that uh, I really learned a lot from our conversation. I hope everyone else did as well. Thank you so much, Marissa. So I really appreciate the time you have taken to, you know, talk to me and um, help me talk about my research and share my research. And yeah, and I just, uh, I know that many people listen to your podcast, so I'm open to collaborations. I'm new faculty at Drexel University. I'm looking to collaborate with people. I know we had some really interesting conversation about, you know, uh, traumatic brain injury and its uh, impact on balance deficits and things like that. So, yeah, there are a lot of uh, great faculty doing excellent work. And, uh, yeah, please reach out if if people are interested in collaborating. So Um, I um, I will link your faculty profile at Drexel in the show notes. But is there anything else that you want to plug to recommend people check out? Um, You have a social media or a article that you've written recently or something that you want them to to look for to get connected with you? Yeah, if you can just uh, link my prof- my Drexel profile, that'd be great. I think it lists my some of my recent publications. So if people are interested in, in that type of work, we can definitely talk. But yeah, I, I kind of wanted to say thank you so much, you know, for taking the time and um, giving me a platform to share my research. I really appreciate it as, as an early career researcher. Thank you so much. Oh, I mean, absolutely. I completely understand. I'm, I'm in a similar boat, so I completely understand being, you know, getting a couple of papers out and hoping, I hope someone reads this someday. <laughs> That's <laughs> and, so true. <laughs> so absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I, I really enjoy it. I think this is something that I, that I really like to do is talk to interesting people. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast of the Balance and Falls Special Interest Group of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. For more information, please see the show notes or visit neuropt.org. Thank you.